0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am here with Adrian Gaydon. Adrian is a machine learning lead at Toyota Research Institute. Adrian, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. I'm super happy to be here. Thank you for inviting, Sam. So we are here in Las Vegas uh, at the AWS reInvent conference where you gave a talk, and we will dig into the topic of your talk, which was about advancing autonomous vehicle development using distributed deep learning. But before we do that, I'd like to hear a little bit about your background. How did you get uh, into machine learning? Uh, Yeah,
1: absolutely. So uh, I've been doing deep learning and machine learning for uh, more than 10 years now. Um, I was really interested initially in um, human learning, human psychology, uh, but I also really like computers and building stuff. So machine learning and AI kind of was like a natural match made in heaven. Um, and so I started doing uh, a double major in computer science and math and, and at the same time uh, looking into AI more. And then I did an internship at um, INRIA uh, in the very well-known group uh, from Codelia Schmidt and Computer Vision where I uh, participated to some competitions like the ancestors of ImageNet, so Pascal, VOC, uh, Visual Object Challenges, uh, which I won in 2008. Um, And then I continued the PhD that was uh, with Microsoft Research um, and INRIA at a joint center in Paris where I was working on video understanding, uh, more specifically human action recognition. Okay. Um, and after that, I joined uh, XRCE, uh, XRX Research Center Europe. And you—you you actually uh, interviewed uh, a friend of mine, my former boss, Niall Murray, uh, oh, who's wow. the computer vision team there. Okay. Um, great episode, by the way. <laughs> um, and so I joined them as a research scientist um, and uh, worked in video analysis in general. So started that research effort there. Um, at the same time, deep learning emerged. So that's when I really transitioned from. Uh, principled convex optimization and kernel methods <laughs> into the alchemy of deep learning. and never looked back since. Um, and um,
0: Are we I, saying alchemy just in celebration of the fact that NeurIPS is next week?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and from then on, um, did a lot of work on tracking and especially domain adaptation. And because we didn't have a lot of data, uh, I had to make my own. So I started uh, looking into simulation a lot, uh, game engines uh, to generate uh, data um and uh, i did a couple of cpr papers on the topic that were noticed by the industry at large and autonomous driving which at the time was like really getting into simulation and that's how i joined tri um, because they're really dedicated to simulation very very large scale these problems only happen at a large scale if you have just small needs like robotaxi etc you can just label uh, data but at a very very large scale and you know like toyota is number one car maker in the world 100 million cars on the road today um, you need to think about these problems. And that's what gets me excited as a machine learning person because it's all about generalization. And when you think about worldwide, like Japan, Australia, US, everywhere, it has to work. Um, and that's what's really cool because you both have to invent new things in the research, but you also have to make it work. Uh, and uh, and you, you get to touch on all these things. So that, that's how I got into it. And I got really hooked into uh, robotic space in general and autonomous driving in particular because it's such a great application for machine learning.
0: Okay. Okay. Um... Before we get too deep into what you spoke about here, uh, what's what's the focus at TRI in general and then uh, your focus there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, TRI was created uh, almost like three years ago now. Um, it's basically a separate company that was uh, created by Toyota with $1 billion funding initially, and we got $2.8 billion more and spin off a new company called TRI AD Advanced Development uh, recently. Um, Our focus is really, like we're a robotics company, uh, and our focus is really about autonomous driving, uh, home robots, and we also do some material science research uh, for designing better batteries and and things like this. Uh, But most of our efforts is really in driving. And the team I lead in machine learning is really about research for autonomous driving. Uh, We do also things for robotics a little bit, because from our perspective, a car is a robot. Um, It's a sensory motor loop, essentially. You have perception, prediction, planning, decision, action, um, and these feedback loops from the real world, which is what's exciting. It's a physical system. Um, And TRI really has a mission to improve quality of life. Uh, in general. I know it sounds very Silicon Valley, uh, but in that case, it's actually true uh, because we have already hundreds of millions of users. And so the goal is, one is a project called Guardian, which is to make a car that can't crash. So it's the ultimate driver assistance system. Um, Another one is Chauffeur which is the real autonomous car, like not the ones we're talking about today, but the long-term, the, the, the long game, which is real autonomy. Like these cars that can drive themselves completely autonomously everywhere all the time, which obviously is not going to happen tomorrow. We
0: talk a lot about that one today.
1: We talk, we, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, but the, the, that's, it depends on the product, right? What people think, and, and here Toyota is thinking really about the long-term thing. Mm-hmm. The cool thing is that these two, Guardian and Chauffeur, in terms of the machine learning side of things, they have a huge intersection. Mm-hmm. You still need a semantic segmentation object detection, tracking. A lot of the algorithms that we're talking about in computer vision are actually completely in common, almost completely in common. So from the perspective of my research, um, um, I don't make a difference necessarily between these products because most of the research I do is very well aligned with those purposes. And then we also do home robotics, so we have like a really, really good teams there—Exnasa, uh, JPL, etc.—where um, they work on mobile manipulation platforms so that to assist the elderly for
0: home care and these kind of things. So, and does Toyota have products in market in these uh, in the home robotics space? So actually, Toyota manufactures a robot that's called the HSR,
1: the Human Support robot. Uh, That was, uh, I think, the official platform for the RoboCup uh, recently. So, um, Toyota is really big on robotics.
0: RoboCup. I was thinking RoboCup. Yeah. (laughs)
1: RoboCup with a U. Pardon my French. (laughs) <laughs> nice. <laughs> no. So so yeah, so the goal is basically how do we transform Toyota into a robotics company. Yeah. They have this amazing like industrial robotics side, of course, but like really um, what is the future of cars? Um and it's gonna be robocars, but it's also gonna be robots beyond cars. Um, and also how they become a software company and and actually a machine learning company. That's that's really what's exciting. Because it's at this scale of a company that they want to change. And the CEO Akio Toyoda was really talking about like, you know, the song that Andy Jassy is talking about his keynote, the, the Clash song. If we don't do it, we're, it's not good. And if we do it, <laughs> uh, we have to do it right. <laughs> and right. so that's, that's what's really exciting.
0: Tell me a little bit about the key message of your talk here at reInvent. Uh, yeah, so here, uh, what we wanted to talk about was how we, uh,
1: you can do a distributed deep learning infrastructure in the cloud uh, that actually scales really well and is highly performant. So, when we started this thing, um, when, when I, I, I took over the team uh, a bit more than a year and a half ago, um, I, like Terry, were really well funded, as I mentioned. So I had dollar signs in my eyes, and I was like, all right, I'm going to buy so many <laughs> GPUs. I'm going to splurge. I'm gonna, and, and we had a server room. We had everything there. And, um, and then actually, it was still, even if you have the money, even if you have the, the means at your disposal, it's still fairly slow to, to ramp up. And uh, we had Mike Garrison, which was doing a talk with me, which is our lead of infrastructure engineering, was telling me, hey, what about Amazon? I was like, they have K80s. You know? they, they have old GPUs. It's slow, et cetera. But... Uh, keeping an open mind uh, we tried a couple of things um, and uh, we got in touch with the AWS folks and and we did a lot of infrastructure work to really like make it work Um, first single node uh, then multi-node and um, using PyTorch we're a PyTorch shop we used to be an anything shop uh, Mm -hmm. and then a TensorFlow shop and we really like switched to PyTorch full-time a year ago or something and, um, and the talk was really about this kind of journey uh, through which we went from like, yeah, you have an on-prem compute and you can do stuff uh, to really, really large scale uh, distributed deep learning in the cloud that's efficient. And efficiency is, is really the key here. And in driving in particular, there's one thing that is very different from, let's say, normal machine learning that you would see at NIPS or, or CPR, which is we care about small networks that operate at a high resolution. And there's two reasons for that. One is that they need to be small, because even if you can compress them, quantize them, and all these kind of things that we know we can make them more efficient, still, uh, you need a, a smaller model initially uh, to, to fit in the like, computational budget that we have in the car, because safety critical, so you have to have like really efficient models. Um, and the second thing is, you need very high resolution because time equals space. So, I was talking in my talk about like these weird equations. Um, I was talking about lean deep learning. So, you want like faster and around time and these kind of stuff. Mm. We want to create some kind of Toyota production system uh, of deep learning, in a sense, yeah. uh, so that we can iterate really quickly from idea to model to validation and go back to the drawing board because it's research. Um, and. Uh, this idea of very high resolution is part of one of our constraints uh, that we have to deal with because we want to predict things from far. Uh, and so seeing far is like when you read the driver California Handbook of Drivers, uh, it tells you you have to look far in the distance to look far into the future. And so resolution is kind of a key thing. Um, it's we're we talking
0: literally camera resolution?
1: Camera, re- camera resolution, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, specifically for the computer vision models that, that we're using. Mm-hmm. And so that means that the compute workload is kind of different because you have small models and very high resolution. So, in terms of uh, data flow, operations, time you spend in these metrics multiplies, and, and all these kind of things, it's very different. So, we have. You can't to... downsample or crop everything to 224? Nah, no, no, no. <laughs> or sci fi resolution doesn't cut it for us, sadly. No, it doesn't. Um, and so we had to. If you use the standard tools like the data parallel or distributed data parallel from PyTorch, which are amazing at ImageNet and these kind of stuff, they didn't scale for us. And so okay. we had to rewrite a couple of things, and that's what we talked about.
0: Okay. Uh, so let's let's walk through that journey. So the you you mentioned that one of the first steps was you kind of had to build up the 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 infrastructure like at a node level mm-hmm. from scratch was that where it started or was there yeah. or were there steps before
1: yeah no 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 so we started so that that's that's the cool thing about TRI is that we're fairly young and we're small and so there's no no technical debt right. uh, because there's enough there was nothing when i started right and that was super cool because i'm uh, as a research scientist i was mostly you know Use this, use that. All right, it's there. You know, Use Slurm, because it's this way. Or use that that's a file system. It's there. OK. And here was really just sky's the limit, what you should do. And so we really got um, the opportunity to use the best, partner with the best. So we worked directly with a lot of different partners. And then we really created the thing from scratch, uh, and first single node, because it was really easy, and uh, and did all kinds of tricks. Now you have some machines that are monster machines, You know, with 700 gigs of RAM. And so you can scale quite well but up to a point. And so that's when we started to switch to
0: using distributed file systems. So we did a BGFS based uh, distributed file system. Before we leave that that initial node uh-huh. uh, I thought I heard you say earlier that it was difficult and you had to go through a lot of steps oh, to yeah. like, get on that first. They get that first node up and running but then oh, yeah. you just said it was really easy. Oh, I'm assuming it's... that means relative to a full distributed kind of <laughs> So it, you know setup. it's this like, what's the I'm kind of curious about the you know, the, the pain points that you had to, to go through just to get this up and running and also the extent to which there's still pain points or there are other things that have kind of wiped that all away? So, so yeah, okay. The first one is this space, right? So the first one is because of the
1: scale of the data we have uh, you cannot so for for a lot of like let's say debug experiments or research experiments on small data sets you can fit them on the RAM and you should do that because mm-hmm. that's just like the best bang for your buck, but when you have a lot large data large data sets um, then that becomes uh, much more complicated and so we we first switch from the RAM disks to EBS volumes or or more EFS or we tried everything. Um, but for <laughs> like v- these kind of like this high resolution small networks to not be network bound, right, to not have this GPU starvation problem where your average utilization of the GPU is like 15% or something ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and these machines are expensive. So you want to bump that, that right. to 90% or above. Um, We we, that's what we had to actually, even before we started really doing distributed computations, using a distributed file system uh, enabled us to really download the data once and not every time you set up a machine. Because if you auto-provision machines and you have to download data from S3, every time you start a machine, then you're saying like, oh, I have this idea, let's wait two hours before I can just like, press play, right? right. Um, so that was a big pain point uh, for research to have this fast turnaround time. So the distributed file system was something that was very useful at the single node level and of course scaled to the multi-node. So we did right. it two birds with one stone. Um, and, and so besides, where did you
0: end up with that?
1: Uh, we, we used the BGFS okay. uh, as a file system. And we're, we're going to look at Luster, like the, this, these announcements that were made recently. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very interesting. Another pain point that we had and was... So
0: the, uh, sorry, uh, the, the BGFS, you're managing your, yourself. You just yes. deploying it on a node in your yeah. AMI or whatever.
1: Yeah. So we have like uh, <clears throat> a set of instances that serve that file system that is then mounted on these instances. Yeah. And we have some infrastructure as code to just like spin this off, like all configured and ready. Um, there's something around containers. So we were baking stuff a lot into the AMI, uh, into the the machines themselves. That way, when they're started, you're just there directly Mm -hmm. because not everybody was familiar with a Docker. Uh, But we picked up Docker too uh, because there's obvious reproducibility benefits. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you hack a lot of things quickly at the beginning of a research project, having this kind of, Docker file where uh, people w- can reproduce your environment mm-hmm. uh, and not just you know your 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 experiments. That's actually extremely helpful for
0: collaboration in mm-hmm. the team. So we it use- also ties back to that agility and being able to move quickly as exactly. opposed to booting up a whole machine. Yes, and-
1: yes. And and our uh, IT folks were so happy because it's not like this this doesn't work. Yeah, but because you happy to get installed something that wrecks the system, <laughs> and that's of course so DevOps. So really embracing DevOps, yeah. even for researchers, actually was quite powerful because. You can only do the research that, um, you know, the mastery of the tools is really important to empower you to do research beyond, uh, you know, just Python Jupyter notebook. Let's say it's an awesome tool, but if you want to go beyond, you need to master other tools, and uh, that's that's what we've been doing. It's a journey through engineering craftsmanship as much as deep learning research.
0: Mm-hmm. Does the you know when you talk about kind of applying DevOps in this world to what degree uh, in your experience does it apply directly? Or are there, you know, gaps or it only takes you so far, or you have to modify the way you think about it? And I, I realize that I'm saying that as if DevOps is this well-defined thing. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's a it's a good question. I think there's
1: like uh, two ways to, like, let's say there's two extremes, right? There's the extreme of you do everything yourself and there's the extreme of you just use blindly something that someone does for you. Mm. Um, and in that space of of, you know, all the grad students in the world in machine learning, they spend a considerable amount of time configuring their environment. Uh, that's a skill we developed during our PhDs. Um, and 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 Docker and these kind of things, if you if you don't become an IT guy or a DevOps guy, but just learn from the best there. And they do some of the things like around security and and, and that's really important for data that, that we have that I don't know. I don't have an inkling. But they exposed us to AWS services, they exposed us to some Docker stuff. So I'm not an AWS expert, I'm not a Docker expert, I'm not a Kubernetes expert. But knowing a little bit of that enables, empowers you to try more bold research ideas and actually debug. And when you care about the performance of your model, not just in terms of its accuracy, but its speed, um, having this knowledge enables you to do um, research much faster actually, uh, mm-hmm. which is counterintuitive a little bit. Uh, but uh, again, when you're beyond MNIST, uh, that's what it takes.
0: Right, right. You started out doing uh, a lot of this yourself, yourself meaning like within, you know, as research sci- a community of research scientists. Uh, it sounds like you were presenting with an infrastructure person, so yep. now you've got kind of, yep. you know, professional support.
1: Yeah, we do. Um, we do work really tightly with them. I also, my team is like probably like 30% engineers. Okay, um, and' it's, it's really I think it's really good for research teams to have this mix of uh, really scientists uh, and engineers. Um, and because, again, as I said, the lines are blurred at large scale research and you mm-hmm. need these two skills. And obviously also like the, all the DevOps and infrastructure engineering teams. So the collaborative spirit at TRI is really, really good. Like because we're small, we're very tightly knit. and because there was no technical debt, we're building everything uh, together mm-hmm. and and really nothing that the infrastructure engineering built was done in isolation without consulting us so Mm -hmm. that's why we have a system that works really smoothly because all the concerns were shared and 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 addressed at the same time from all the pieces of the puzzle so um it's it's really nice to have that like kick-ass modern infrastructure built around around you somehow Mm -hmm. and with you
0: yeah yeah and so did that did that uh infrastructure uh engineering team and support was that always there or did that you know come at a certain point after you'd, um, you know, built some things. Yeah. It's
1: a fairly recent addition. So, okay. so we it started kind of organically and then you had some people that were there and it started to be formalized only recently uh, as we scaled up, uh, and where that need became much more obvious. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: And is that infrastructure team primarily responsible for like, where, where, where's kind of the line that they, how far up the stack did they go? Are they, Worrying about like tools and frameworks and software platforms, or is it primarily, you know, infrastructure and you know, network and disk and file systems and connections to the cloud and all of that stuff?
1: So I, I would say the latter. So so I think you know the lines are are blurry. Yeah. But um you need this single responsibility principle, you know, that applies well for software. It also applies for organization. You know, there's this Conway's law that says that um uh software uh organization Write software that is architected in a way that reflects the organization, right? And so um, I think it's really good if you have like clear responsibilities, but also the lines are a bit blurred because that means that you get a system that is flexible. Um, but you, you need these kind of responsibilities too. So there's some separation. And in my team in machine learning research, and we are the ones that made the decision to switch to PyTorch, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way we did that is that, for instance, I re implemented YOLO myself a year and a half ago in all the different uh, deep learning frameworks. And it was after doing that, like, object detection is really nice because it's a structured prediction problem that's shoehorned into a classification one. And so it breaks the APIs that most frameworks support, like, uh, from the get-go. Hmm. Um, and so if you use that, you know you're, you're s- stretching a little bit the capabilities of the network in terms of their uh, the, the framework, in terms of their APIs. Uh-huh. And so re-implementing uh, YOLO in all these different frameworks made it clear that as a research scientist, I value flexibility and PyTorch had the flexibility. Chainer is also very good. There, There's other alternatives, but debugging and extra. So at, at certain levels, like that's why I said, like research scientists were making engineering decisions because choosing PyTorch is something that we wanted to make as a research scientist group. Um, mm-hmm. And and for the reason of also of the particular research we're doing. So for instance, one of the things we're doing um, is uh, we did a paper recently called SuperDepth, which is a paper about predicting uh, the depth from a, uh, of a scene from a single image. Um, and, uh, and so we use a self-supervised method where we use geometry as supervision instead of using mm. uh, labels, because for that, you can't label. Um, and, uh, and this is, again, an example where we use super resolution. So this idea of, re- of high resolution is actually important also for accuracy. If you super resolve the, the images, this mm-hmm. helps you predict better depth maps. That was one of the key findings that we made in the, in the paper. And so all that is also enabled because of the choices we made on the software side and PyTorch and all these kind of things, and also around the community that there is around it. So that enables us to really move fast uh, mm-hmm. and stand on the shoulder of giants. Uh,
0: so I, I talked to different organizations that have differing opinions on, well, how opinionated to be yeah. for, for their organizations. It sounds like uh, you're of the mind to kind of standardize, on, in this case, on PyTorch uh, at TRI as opposed to other places, um, you know, we're going to build a kind of a framework, a platform, and it's going to be able to support whatever the research scientist or engineer wants to, yeah. to use. Talk me through a little bit the, of the the, thing, the way you think about that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I think about it in almost mathematical terms.
1: Uh, it's the bias-variance trade-off. Mm. Um, and and <laughs> if, if you have Small bias, right? And if you have like a high variance and you're really favoring exploration for these kind of stuff, you need a lot of people that are willing to support you, right? So if you say, oh, yeah, Slurm and Kubernetes and PyTorch and TensorFlow and everything and the little framework that that random guy made on his own free time, you know, right. then you're, you're, so first of all, like, what is actually your business like like is it making those that infrastructure and and no for us it's not for us, it's making awesome robots, awesome machine learning, so um I clearly err more in the bias uh, area um but You know, it's this idea of a little bit of map reduce, right? Exploration exploitation trade-off, first, you have high variance. And for a little while, you go wild. You explore, Mm -hmm. and you're maybe not bound by...
0: You implement yellow in every framework. Exactly. (laughs) Something like this, right? And
1: then, but then at some point, you need to make a decision, right? Uh, Right. Because that's not sustainable. And so, and, and you want to move fast in a clearly identified direction. Once you have identified that direction, and you never have enough data to prove that you're right, so at some point you have to have ex- express leadership and just go with it, um, and then you go you go for it. And of course you keep an open mind because then there's the next phase of exploration because you're right for only a short amount of time in the in this field of deep learning.
0: Did we take a diversion on kind of the the, the path that you laid out in the? Present. Oh, yeah. We get kind of we, take we, a turn at step one.
1: We got beautifully sidetracked, but in, <laughs> in a wonderful direction. Um, so, so yeah, so we, we were single nodes, uh, everything in the RAM, and then moved to uh, like try the uh, existing storage solutions, then moved to more uh, like distributed file system. And once we had this, because it's an in-memory distributed file system, uh, we didn't have GPU starvation anymore. But then our training was slow because we were limited to a single machine. Mm-hmm. And then P3 instances happened, so we started to use uh, V100 GPUs, much better. Um, that required also tuning the the storage again to avoid GPU starvation. And then we again augmented to go into multi-node, and with the distributed file system, that that. That at least the data was easily accessible from all the different nodes, um, and then that's when we start to hit the limitations of uh, like distributed PyTorch, which was very recent at the time.
0: But before we jump to to distributed, mm-hmm. uh, I'm curious about the you know you've got some I guess quote unquote hyperparameters like the uh, uh, virtual CPUs or you know the machine configuration parameters yeah. like. You know, Are there kind of universal rules of thumb for that kind of thing that you figured out? Or do you experiment with it a lot? Is it job-dependent a lot? So, are you overly yeah. focused on economic optimization? Like, How do you oh, work through all that so stuff? So we
1: optimize for time. We don't optimize for cost yet. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that one was easy. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's, that, that was easy. Um, we haven't... So th- that's more, again, the job of the infrastructure engineering people. So does that, that
0: mean you just get the biggest one with the best GPU and... You got it, it. Okay. exactly that's that's <laughs> okay. exactly
1: it so and also because our workloads it was obvious that that was the only thing to do. Okay. Um, so go big or go home that's yeah. basically what we did yeah yeah so for a single machine we just like tried to scale as much as possible on a single machine and that meant these big big instances uh, we psyched to use uh, soon the the new ones that were announced are even bigger so actually that's feedback that we directly gave AWS. Mm. Um it's it's quite cool to see that that we give them feedback a year ago and then like keynotes was oh and we heard you, we did this. And so the biggest instances that they made, that's that's something that we had asked for uh and a couple of other cool stuff. So um but you're still limited on a single machine.
0: And so when you were at kind of topping out at a single machine, like how long were your jobs running for? Uh so at at this stage it was more in the order of weeks.
1: Um, but that's what kind of job is this? So, so the main, uh, one in terms of like computational, the most computationally expensive one is semantic segmentation.
0: Okay.
1: Um, because again, it's like high resolution. It's very dense. It's dense prediction. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that, that was the, the, the most computationally expensive job. Another type of job that we do, um, that is also uh, very expensive is, um, uh, imitation learning. Uh, so we do a lot of research on end-to-end driving. Mm -hmm. Uh, The main reason is not so much that we believe that it's all you need to driving, obviously not, but we get a lot of data from actual cars. And and so we get a lot of demonstrations. And so there's this really interesting research question that we're working on, which is how much value can you derive from these demonstrations? This is Mm -hmm. a form of supervision on driving that you want to distill down into your models. And so we do a lot of research there. And that's... um, you know, use all the data is really the question that animates us. How can we use all the data? And mm-hmm. because we can't label everything, we're not going to active learning routes. And the same thing that everybody else is doing, because obviously we're doing that. But that's not the open research challenge. Everybody knows active learning is, is a good thing to do when you label things. We're really interested in self-supervised learning. How can we really use all the data by leveraging geometry, right. uh, for instance? How do we uh, use demonstrations at scale? And so that's those are the workflows because motivated by the research direction we're going in those were the most intensive uh, ones and
0: a uh, single machine these are things that easily take uh, weeks okay okay so then that necessitated jumping over to distributed training yes uh, absolutely did you do that after the the decision to stick with, to go with uh, Pytorch, yep. or did you have to figure that out twice? No, we we we
1: had made so because also we 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 have a lot of like we're in Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. so it's really it's really nice that there's a lot of dense communication between people are not afraid to share their plans where yeah. they're going. So so we know uh, to some extent where things were going and we know where we wanted to go. So we also were open about this with with different partners, and so we knew that when we were going to hit uh, the distributed uh, wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would be ready for it, so we had all the all those factors were were factored in at the at the decision time,
0: mm-hmm.
1: at the first one. So we didn't have to revisit it later. Thank- okay, thankfully.
0: But you did have to. Uh, it sounds like wait on some PyTorch uh, features yep. to support doing distributed the way you wanted. Yes,
1: absolutely. So initially, we were starting to be a little bit afraid that we would have to either fork or do some. Like really big upstream contribution to PyTorch too. Mm-hmm. and as again as I was mentioning it's kind of like a niche application uh, from the deep learning era like uh, like high high resolution semantic segmentation for instance is not something that a lot of people are pursuing mm-hmm. so we are starting to uh, wonder if there was another way than to hit like low in the stack, right? Um, and, and we did, like, fairly intense debugging, performance profiling, and which is not easy in the cloud uh, because everything is, like, in the ether. Um, and what we found, actually, and that's kind of, like, was, was an interesting end of the debugging journey for the performance optimization, was that in the distributed setting, when we had many machines and a very efficient distributed file system, um, um, our epochs, right, our passes over the entire training data became really fast. Because we had these huge batch sizes, and 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 everything was flowing really well to the GPUs. GPUs were crunching really quickly, and 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 what happened is that there was like huge downtimes, uh, like weight, like like there was a bottleneck somewhere. And it turns out that that bottleneck, which was hard to find, was in the data loaders. When you do your your you know you how you do multiple workers that prefetch the data for you in parallel to feed the GPUs, like the super hungry GPUs, like really quickly. And in Python, because you have this global interpreter lock, you have to use processes and not threads um, to do that. And so it's stock PyTorch data loaders. It starts workers, which starts uh, multiple work, uh, processes. And, and, and forking, uh, like creating a process, is much more heavy than creating a thread. Mm-hmm. And when you do this uh, very quickly uh, in a distributed setting, that actually became the bottleneck. So we had to change just the data flow and the way we were doing this prefetching in those queues by having some kind of like always warm queues that were kind of like infinitely producing and then infinitely consuming on the other hand. And we're playing with fire a little bit there because we're, we're creating racing conditions. And so <laughs> deadlocks can happen. But because- I mean, but this we,
0: doesn't sound like, you know, this doesn't sound like a plugin or something that's- So this was totally to not PyTorch. a plugin. This so this was on
1: like... top, right? This was, this was something that we, we were using stock PyTorch <laughs> Except for the data. Oh, loaders. Really? Except okay. for the data loaders, where where we change the data loaders to something else, okay. and and and, that, and that's what I mentioned by this warm producers, infinite and this racing right. conditions. Um, and recently, we've been playing more and more with Horovod. Okay. It's an awesome open source library made by Uber, mm-hmm. and uh, and it works a, with
0: PyTorch. It
1: works with PyTorch. I didn't realize it's that TensorFlow and PyTorch. It started with TensorFlow and now it's PyTorch. Okay. Um, and actually, this provides this great MPI-like uh, interface. Um, and that enables, so it's a little bit less efficient for our niche application, but we have other applications. And so the flexibility that you get with Horovod might be worth the price in performance. So we're
0: considering moving more and more stuff to Horovod. It sounds like you were able to, you invested a little bit in kind of tweaking PyTorch to make it work, but it kind of caught up and now you've got some solutions that work for you. Uh, and so you are able to do distributed training. Like, were you done? Like, you know, popped the <laughs> pop the champagne and...
1: So, it, so it's interesting. Uh, in, in one way, yes, uh, because um, uh, there was a lot of internal questions. So like, like I said, Triara is a robotics company. And one thing you have to understand is that in autonomous driving... Roboticists they do very th- things very differently than 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 the really hardcore deep learning crowd, which is they use to lidar sensors, clustering mm-hmm. methods like DARPA challenge stuff that work awesomely well um, and have like much stronger safety guarantees than what we do in deep learning. And so they're not necessarily um, very um, experienced in the in the deep learning way. And so doing these kind of things um, also means that like training for weeks to develop an algorithm that sounds insane. Um, and so here, doing this distributed training and showing them internally that hey, you can do things really quickly in the cloud at scale, and you can tweak your models and, and do your develop your algorithms almost as quickly as if you were not doing deep learning, that was a, kind of like a champagne popping uh, bottle popping moment where mm-hmm. they said oh that's super cool now we actually like are gonna run with it. Uh, of course, we're not done on the research side. Um, now we can basically study. What happens when you do self-supervised learning at a, on a lot of videos? What happens if you do imitation learning on really a lot of demonstrations? And actually, we we have um, a paper that we're going to push on archive soon, where we really push the boundaries of imitation learning and showed that um, you can go quite far uh, with like deeper models and more data. It's kind of like a prototypical deep learning story: more data, deeper models, <laughs> that works really well. And that's only thanks to the infrastructure that we had. That we had an awesome intern, Felipe, uh, that could do these experiments. Uh, thanks to that, so we're not we're not there, but we're definitely enjoying the the fruit of our labor.
0: Nice, nice. So the semantic segmentation that before you w- made it over to distributed was taking weeks. What does it take now, typically?
1: So we can do things in like under two hours now.
0: Oh wow! Yeah. Wow, uh, that's really fast. Yeah. Um, what does that require in terms of a cluster size? So we uh we typically run jobs
1: uh at I think right now, um beyond eight machines, so beyond sixty four GPUs, uh for a single network, right? Um mm-hmm. we, we find that we don't need to go beyond that uh, at this stage. So we don't do like like okay. a single network on two hundred fifty six GPUs or something like okay. this. Which is the most people that do that at least publicly uh, do that is just to beat speed records on ImageNet, uh, <laughs> which, you know, is nice. Uh, it's not really what we're going for. Mm-hmm. So for the jobs we do, uh, let's say between four and eight uh, machines, so 32 and 64 GPUs, uh, provides us with like a small turnaround time um, and good iteration speed for our research.
0: Is it that, it you know, the complexity involved in going from eight to, you know, some multiple of eight it, it isn't... Uh... You know, is is overburden Is it that the value of going from two hours to you know thirty minutes isn't there? So there's there's some like more infrastructure problems
1: around like uh, limitation of supply. You know, like we we often joke at TRI we have infinite GPUs because we're in the cloud, right. uh, um, but in reality it's not necessarily there because availability zones, etc. So some some things that I don't fully understand. Um, the other thing is. Um, also, at some point, you start to hit uh, algorithmic difficulties. So, mm-hmm. like, for instance, a year ago, people were convinced you couldn't do large batch uh, SGD uh, because you would have generalization performance issues. Um, and that's when Facebook made their, you know, oh, actually, no, it's just a numerical optimization problem. You just got to do the linear scaling rule, this warm-up. You have to twiddle a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. And and then, and then, yes, it generalizes the same way. And that's when you had this explosion of large batch training methods. Uh, but still... Um, it, there's a limit to that right and depending on your data sets depending on your learning algorithm depending on also the, the data at hand right so the particular um uh, generalization gap that you have to overcome um large like there's a good size of batch size uh, so beyond like very like there's a limit to how bad how big your
0: batch can be okay do you have a a single uh, cluster running at a time, or do you you know spin up multiple clusters and run multiple training jobs kind of constantly all the time? And does that you know if that's the case, or even if not, really does that level of um, of uh, change drive you to use something like uh, Kubernetes or some kind of infrastructure? you've mentioned Kubernetes and Slurm and yeah. some other things. Yeah.
1: So right now the way we do it is we provision clusters on demand by the researchers. So we tend to have a couple of uh, um, like clusters per, per researcher, per project. Um, so that's that's really nice also because it helps a lot with experimental management, you know, like babysitting experiments It's a mm-hmm. full-time job when you get closer to the deadline. And, um, and, and having like these um, separate clusters for these separate workflows for Several people um, that helps with just the cognitive load of, of so where, where it goes, what, etc. And so we didn't feel like, and all, again, my team is like fairly small, we're like 12, 13 people. Okay. So we don't need uh, necessarily. Uh, we do very large experiments but we don't necessarily do many many different experiments we like probably have four or five projects at the same time okay so no need for like complex scheduling or monitoring or queuing or these kind of things Uh, it's gonna get there and we know it so Mm -hmm. that's why we're preparing uh for for that um and uh i have like more an hpc experience so that's why i favor a bit slurm um uh, also because when we started having this discussion kubernetes was not supporting gpus now they do Mm -hmm. um and the only thing I'm a little bit afraid of is adding interaction levels because, again, we care about speed and performance. So, the story, the stock that I was talking uh, mentioning before, we could do that because we were A, working tightly with the infrastructure engineering team or AWS or NVIDIA. We were actually talking to them directly. Uh, and uh, B, we actually knew what was going on under the hood. Mm-hmm. So, we could Pop up, uh, uh, look under the hood and say, oh, yeah, this is wrong or this is wrong or this smells funny. Can you check this? Right. Mm -hmm. And so if we do too much, add too many layers of interaction, like Kubernetes might be that, I don't know, I'm not sure. uh, I'm a little bit afraid that we lose control and we lose interpretability uh, in a sense. And our models are already hard to
0: interpret. So (laughs) Hmm. Uh, you mentioned. In passing, the managing experiments, experiment management, have you built any higher level tooling or infrastructure to help research scientists do that? Or is there something that you're using off the shelf? Or is it, you know, post-it notes and Excel spreadsheets (laughs) or something?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we did our fair share of Excel scheduling, of course, Uh uh, do that a little bit, uh, but Um, We had an interesting journey where we initially used TensorBoard, but then TensorBoard didn't scale for us uh, Mm. because it had disk, uh, and so it it just, like, didn't work. Um, We switched to Visdom, but Visdom is a little bit too bare-bones. It's very flexible, but um, there was also other issues there. So we were really starting to think about this. And at the same time, we got in touch with a company, a startup called WNB, Weights and Biases. WNB, Weights uh, and Biases. Yep, Lucas mm-hmm. and they basically like Lucas was just creating his company and mm-hmm. basically talked to us and OpenAI and looking for like what do you guys need and and uh, and we really worked really tightly with them uh, we're happy customers now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we have this really cool like experiment dashboard, experiment management system, um, where we can do a lot of visualization of experiments, multi-user, multi-project. It scales really well. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, that's what we use today. And so we're really, again, not optimizing for cost. We're optimizing for time. Right. And because there's a lot of excitement around machine learning, there's a lot of opportunities um, to work with great partners. So that's that's our approach.
0: When you first mentioned scale there you were talking about on disk performance of of tensorboard but then uh, later when you're talking about um is scaling like are, how is it doing in terms of I mean you're not a huge organization but is it scaling in terms of the number of experiments that yeah. you do you... Yeah.
1: So right now we're like probably less than 20 users of that service okay. so uh, I can't say about the scaling in the user but yeah. the, for we do a lot of experiments like I mean as you know, researchers, we we a lot of research is the spaghetti plate strategy, which is you throw it at the wall and you see what sticks. So you have in a hyperparameter optimization, all these kind of things means that a single researcher, especially when you have this nice infrastructure in terms of machines and experiments you can run, mm-hmm. you're gonna you're gonna like have a fire hose of metrics you want to visualize, um, and so and so that scales really well for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, we're not in the business of making dashboards or these kind right. of things. So we're right. really happy to partner or buy uh, whatever is not our core business, which is really about this deep learning models for
0: for driving. Mm-hmm. And does WMB do, do the the hyperparameter optimization for you? Or they have do you some services., Yeah,
1: so we do we do our own stuff there. They have some services there, uh, which we don't use. But um, we I think hyperparameter optimization is like, I'm still on the fence whether this is something internal or something that we can partner with. Mm-hmm. Because there is like... Typical patterns and typical like algorithms, and I've been a big user of Hyperopt. So you can do Bayesian hypermetric optimization and these kind of things. Um, and sure, this is like almost standardized, so you could imagine having a service for that instead. But some of these things actually ho- have to hook up really deep into. Uh, so it depends on the model and the, the research project you're doing. Mm-hmm. So there's a blurred line there. Um, and, uh, but there's also like, general purpose algorithms, I think. The, the one that I used the most recently that I, I really like is HyperBand, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of like a bandit uh, approach that's, that's using the fact that it's um, our optimization is sequential, so you can restart from a checkpoint and continue and these kind of things. Um, so yeah, on the fence. Some of the things in house, some of the things black box. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, not. I'm on the
0: fence uh, for this. And so I'm, I'm making an assumption that you don't have to worry about, uh, besides from the kind of distributed file system issues that we've talked about. A lot of the kind of traditional enterprise data management, you know, data lakes, data warehouse, hooking into data stores—that stuff. You just need big disks to store stuff.
1: Yeah. So right? we have like. Uh, like we use S3 a lot and we used to use S3 directly. And so basically, what we've been doing is just like what happened with processors. We add layers of cache, you know, and hotter mm-hmm. and hotter caches, mm-hmm. which are getting smaller as they are getting hotter, uh, and and we have to like asynchronously, preemptively fill those caches and, and these kind of things.
0: So it's it's always the same. Are these caches like the you know the various S3 features like Glacier and all these? Yeah. Uh... So
1: you can you can see basically all these different types of storages, right? Yeah. As these cache like uh, like these are I call them caches, but it's like metaphorical caches, right? Right. Right. Um, and so S3 we used to use S3 directly as like S3 to GPUs and that obviously didn't like didn't scale and so we we added this like you know uh, different so storages and distributed files. yeah EBS file system, all yeah.
0: these things yeah. okay um,
1: and then you have these prefetching queues that are literally filling the ram with uh, next mm-hmm. to next to your GPUs and so you have this ultimate layer of cache right
0: okay and then on the back end are you do you have to worry about inference in model serving?
1: So um, at this moment, the inference is the models we serve are in our robots, right? So that's a big thing, right? Uh, Right. Is that the models we serve are the ones that are going to be in the path to actuation of the car. So um, there, we have like amazing uh, driving technology teams like uh, that own parts of the stack. Like we have an object perception team, we have a SLAM team, we have a planning and controls team. And these guys, they basically take uh, our our models uh, or make their own and uh, they um, you know make them more efficient, fit them you know in the in the computational budget that they have. Uh, and that's how we serve models. So that's a v- fairly different uh, model than let's say a web based uh, application. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Is that uh, that process of getting the models to fit, you know, compression or, or um, pruning or what have you? Is that that's a, still a manual process to a large degree? Is that yeah, right? Yeah.
1: So so to some extent, um, there is these. Um, it's it's kind of a little bit weird because there are some ways that are productized a little bit, like yeah, there's RT and these kind of things, mm-hmm. but it's still more an art than a science, so mm-hmm. it not, doesn't always work. It works for certain types of network, like out of the box, but some mm-hmm. it doesn't. Um, and um, and so do you have some you know, tools or a bag of tricks that are yeah. general purpose that you can throw at this and that you should throw at this, definitely, and that our teams are doing. Um, but upstream, more upstream on the research side than my team, what we're doing, you can learn models that are compressible. Uh, or that are amenable to compression uh, Mm -hmm. by having some compressibility factor built in. You can can have also uh, small models, like as I mentioned, right? And there's more and more research research results that show that small models can generalize as well as big models. They just have to train for longer or you have to change the learning algorithm. Um, And another thing is um, one of the big things we're trying to do is how, how far can we go with multitask learning? right? Because if you can have a shared <laughs> backbone and squeeze many different things, yeah. um, that's awesome. And the one recent project that we did uh, around panoptic segmentation is basically this. is basically take semantic segmentation uh, and take uh, instant segmentation, so mask our CNN and these kind of things, and 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 that works really well, but that's extremely slow. Uh, I think like mask CNN is like 150 milliseconds per image or something. And, and um, you have to Uh, basically reduce those models and and merge them together with maybe different heads uh, Mm -hmm. to make it efficient. And we made a recent uh, paper, it's going to be on archive soon, called TaskNet for Things and Stuff Consistency Network, where we basically (laughs) merge them together and have a task consistency, a cross-task consistency, because the main problem with multitask learning is if you just sum the losses, it doesn't necessarily like they, they maybe contradict each other it's a bit like when you're arriving at an intersection yeah. it says turn left or turn right you don't know you go in the middle there's a well work. there not right. good idea That's so right. like imagine the gradients might be pushing in in uh, orthogonal directions mm-hmm. so one of the key things we did is we actually augmented the objective to have a consistency encouraging objective Hmm. Uh, and uh, between the stuff classes like so road sky etc on the semantic segmentation side and the thing classes uh, on the instance segmentation side so merging these networks is one way to to be more efficient and uh, yeah that's some of the very recent work that we've been doing
0: how have we done in terms of kind of getting a lay of the land of your presentation uh, we went way beyond. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, excellent. <laughs> nice. nice. Awesome. Any uh, kind of parting thoughts or, or words?
1: Uh, no. I think, uh, you know, uh, we're really excited at TRI to continue uh, this direction of uh, large-scale deep learning in the cloud and tackling this really, really challenging um, open research questions Um um, yeah, so we're, we're continuing to grow very, very fast and excited to be in that space, uh, self-driving robots and, and with deep learning. So very happy to have been able to talk about it.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Adrian. It was awesome to have you on the show. It was a pleasure. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course,